Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 through 22. And as you're turning there, let me just make a few comments. One of the reasons why I had that lengthy passage read, there's so many things in that passage that are helpful for us as we go into the sermon this morning. And I can't focus on all of them, but there's at least two or three ideas from John chapter 8 that I wanted to highlight to you this morning before we begin the sermon. And the first is, is that Jesus in the gospel calls his people to go and sin no more. And that's a powerful calling, that's a weighty calling that he places upon us. But then in that lengthy discussion that he has, even a debate that he has with the Pharisees, he makes it clear to us what it is that will set us free from the power of sin in our life. And he makes it very, very clear to us that there is only one thing that can set us free from the power of sin in our life. And that is his word, his truth. The Son can set us free, and those who abide in him, the truth will set them free. The truth as it is in Jesus, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the grace of God, the doctrines of our faith, are that alone which can grant us freedom and liberty from the clutches and the bondage of sin. Now I just say those things as prefatory remarks. Let's, t- let's turn our attention now to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 17 through 22. Uh, we're going to read this text in just a moment. Uh, Just to begin, recall where we've been in our series so far. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter has written to us about the existence of false teachers. He has spoken to us about the condemnation of false teachers. He has spoken to us about the depravity of false teachers. And this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 through 22, he's going to speak to us about the deceptiveness of of false teachers and the outcome of the deceptiveness, the deceptions and the lies of false teachers. False teachers promise fulfillment and they can bring only emptiness. They promise liberty and they can bring only bondage. They promise a better future and they can bring only retroversion, a turning back a last state that is worse than the first, a situation that is not better than the beginning. And the call of this passage then to us, the implicit call, the the call in the context of 2 Peter is to run to the truth because only in the truth can we find the fulfillment that is promised to us. Only in the truth can we find true liberty. And only in the truth can we find a better future. Only the truth can bring us these things. And in context of the whole book, the point that Peter has been making is that we are called by Christ to grow in the Christian life. And the point that he's making here in verse 17 through 22 is that it is vital to our Christian growth to understand something of the deceptiveness of false teachers. Because only the truth can set us free and bring us growth and maturity and bring us to our glorious sin that has been promise to us the call of second peter is to grow in grace and knowledge to grow in the truth and false teachers threaten that calling and that promise so look with me at the verses second peter chapter 2 verse 17 through 22 in verse 17 he's going to speak to us of the emptiness of false teachers In 18 and 19, he speaks to us of the bondage of false teachers. 
And in verse 20 through 22, he speaks of the retroversion, the turning back, the entanglement of false teachers. So here's what he says, verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For, whoever, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. And so in verse 17, Peter speaks to us of the emptiness of false teachers. They promise fulfillment. But they bring only emptiness. They bring only emptiness because they've forsaken the truth. And only in the truth is their fulfillment. Again, verse 17, these are waterless springs. They are mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. You can see this language that he's using here. They're waterless springs. Mists driven by a storm. A spring promises something. If you see a spring, if you see an oasis in the desert, there's a, there's a promise there. You're hoping to find water. You're hoping to find refreshment. You're hoping to find a quench to your thirst. You're you're hoping to find something that will fill you and nourish you. Same thing with a storm. We sympathize with this living in Texas. When you see storm clouds, they promise something. They promise that long-awaited rain. But false teachers are like springs without water. False teachers are like the clouds in Texas summer. (laughs) They're deceptive. They're liars. Here they come, those bright, beautiful clouds. And they bring nothing. And if they bring something, it's that mist that falls for just a moment and it doesn't really help anything. They make big promises, but they have no substance. The Bible tells us that God's God's Word is full of substance. The Bible teaches us that good teachers, good teaching... And the truth, as it's found in Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, is like a water of life. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The gospel, the gospel promises, the gospel truth, the gospel as it is in Jesus is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. These false teachers are the wicked. They have forsaken the fear of the Lord. They have forsaken the true and the sound teaching. Their mouth pours forth folly. They are waterless springs. 
They do not have the fountain of life. They cannot bring the promises that Proverbs teaches us that we read together in our unison reading. The Bible tells us that God himself is a fountain of living waters. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the living waters. John chapter 4, verse 13 through 14, where Jesus is with the woman at the well. And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks this water, this water of the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to everlasting life. John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. Jesus says to the crowds, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is the living waters. His teaching is living waters. He who believes in me, he says, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is living waters. (laughs) Peter is telling us then that these false teachers, what do they lack? They lack sound teaching. They lack the message of the Lord God as a living water. They lack the message of Jesus Christ. They don't present Jesus. They don't present the message of God as the source of life and light and water and being. They twist the faith, the doctrines that we teach. They are waterless springs. They have no substance. They've abandoned the Christian faith or twisted the Christian faith. They've put off those fundamental articles of our faith, like the doctrine of the Trinity, and the doctrine of the Incarnation, and the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, or the doctrine of union with Christ, or the doctrine of sin, or a final judgment. Those waters of life, those teachings of truth that bring us life. But these men preach a different gospel. They preach a gospel of prosperity. The good news that you can have what you want in this life if you follow them or you follow their teaching. This false gospel of name it and claim it. They preach the good news of works. That you're fine. That you're right with God in and of yourself. That you don't need a gospel. You don't need grace. You don't need mercy. You can work your way into heaven. It's all dependent upon you. You can be the arbiter of your own judgment. Or they preach a false gospel of license. The good news that you can have whatever sin you want. That you can live how you want. A message of antinomianism, which means lawlessness. They do not preach the biblical gospel The biblical gospel which is summed up for us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when the angel tells Joseph, you shall name Jesus, Jesus, that is Jehovah saves, for He will save His people from their sins. Salvation in the name of Christ, a salvation from sin. 
Salvation from the penalty of sin. Salvation from the power of sin. Salvation from the practice of sin. Just as Jesus told the woman there in John chapter 8, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Salvation from sin. Salvation from condemnation. Salvation from the power of sin in our life. They preach a false gospel. They preach some other gospel. They twist the truth. They are waterless springs. They are clouds without rain. They don't preach a message of God as the waters of life and His Son as the waters of life and the Word of God as waters of life. They don't preach the message that we preach, brothers. And it's a little bit of an aside, but let me go down the rabbit trail for just a moment, brothers. The Gospel is that God has designed us for Himself. He has designed us for Himself to find all that we are in Him. To find our fullness in Him. In a life of worship and love and trust and service to Him. That's what it means to be human. And God has revealed this to us. And this is the wonderful message that the Bible teaches us. Is that God is our great treasure and our great prize. This is what He told Abraham when He appeared to Abraham. I am your exceedingly great reward. I am your shield. I'm your trust. I'm your refuge. I'm your everything and your all. I made you and I've brought you to this place. This is the message of the Scriptures. And the Scriptures teach us though that no one can come to God except through Christ. We can't find this fullness except through the Son of God, except through Jesus Christ incarnate. And no one can come to Christ, the Scriptures teach us. In fact, Jesus taught us in John chapter 8 unless we abide in His Word through the truth of the Gospel, through the truths that are laid out for us in the Scriptures, illumined and brought home to our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we find our ultimate fullness and our ultimate satisfaction in the truth. The truth as it is in Jesus who brings us to the fountain of living waters, the Father. And we find in God our everything. These false teachers would set up idols of any kind by destroying this message and tearing down this great chain. Right at the heart of it. Right at the root of it, I should say. They abandon the truth. They are waterless springs. They promise fullness and they cannot deliver it because they've forsaken the root of it, which is the doctrines of the faith, the truth. The destiny of these men Notice that Peter mentions their destiny there in the last half of this verse. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. They are reserved for gloom of utter darkness. This is a vivid description that Peter is taking up here. It's one that we've noticed throughout our series. It's a description of alienation and desertion and despair. It's a picture of being cut off from the light of God's face and of His grace and of peace with Him. It's the imagery of being rejected by God. It stirs up those images that we have written for us in the Gospels that Jesus teaches of having the door shut in our face, of Him telling us that He doesn't know us to depart from Him. This terrible fate of being alienated and rejected by God that all of us who are believers know it, sh- it shakes us to the very core of our being to think 
of these images of being rejected and cut off. This is the end of these false teachers, Peter is assuring us. They promise fulfillment. Their own end is gloom. They promise blessedness. Their end is gloom, despair, eternal. They cannot provide what the gospel promises. They cannot provide those things that we read in Proverbs chapter 3. Long life, riches, and honor, and pleasantness, and peace. They promise these things, but they provide only emptiness. They are waterless springs. Now, the purpose that Peter has here, then, is to draw us back to Christ, back to the fountains of living waters, to point us to Him and to encourage us to run to Him and to cling to the truth with all of our soul and to pursue it, to study it, to learn it, to know it, to know the truth as it is in Jesus, to have the gospel and understand the gospel and to grow in it, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to grow in the doctrines, to grow in the promises, to grow in the commandments, and our understanding and our trust and in our obedience. And that's the message to us today. It's a call to us to grow in the truth, to cling to the truth as it is in Jesus, to return to those fountains of living waters again so that we might be protected from these deceptions and these deceivers. Well, he goes on in verse 18 to 19 to speak of the bondage of false teachers. They promise liberty, but they can only bring bondage back into sin. They themselves are in bondage to sin. Look at verse 18 and 19. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Again, let's look at the language of verse 18. They use... Uh, Peter begins with this phrase, loud boast of folly. Literally in the Greek, that's preaching haughty things of emptiness. Again, emptiness, substanceless. They have no Christ. They have no gospel. They have no message. They don't have the message of the scriptures. They don't have the truth as it is in Jesus. They've twisted it, they've maligned it. Loud boast of folly. They preach emptiness because they are empty. They are empty of the truth. But notice what it says next. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They entice. That actually, that language is fishing language. Maybe you like to go fishing, like a lure. They lure. They, they use bait to hook people and to draw them in. And the bait that they use, Peter tells us, is the passions of the flesh. They use sensuality and uncleanness and sin to draw people in. They take advantage of our fallen and our sinful natures and our susceptibility to temptation. And you can see examples of this in many places. You can think of the Gnostics who taught that there was a body-soul distinction and that the soul was good and the body was evil so that whatever you did in the body didn't matter. And they taught people to sin. They lured them in. They didn't free them from sin. They lured them in by sin. You can think of the modern teaching of Mormonism, which teaches polygamy. They lure people in. 
And they do so in the name of Christianity. They bait. But notice who they bait. And I think this is more important than anything. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Now, you've probably heard this taught. A lot of the commentaries will teach this to mean weak Christians. That what Peter is talking about is the way that these false teachers can come in and manipulate and take advantage of weak or immature believers. Or how they can come in and take advantage of recent converts. Those who are barely escaping those who live in error. They interpret this to mean weak Christians or recent converts. And I don't think that's what Peter means at all. I don't think he's speaking simply to a subset of Christianity or of Christians or of the church. We've already established that 2 Peter is addressed to, the, to every believer, to all of the elect. I think what Peter is doing here is he's describing something that's true about all of us, no matter how mature we are, or how long we've been in the faith, or how established we think that we are in the truth. Every believer is in danger. We're on the precipice. Now, we're protected and preserved by God. That's not what Peter means. Peter doesn't mean that we're not secure. But there's a sense in which all of us were on the precipice of hell when God came in and saved us. And He saved us from our sins. He forgave us. And He gave us faith in Jesus Christ. And He gave us new hearts. And we praise the Lord for what He did for us. But we were almost there, brothers. If not for the grace of God, we would still be there. And that would be our eternal destiny. We are those who are barely escaping. It was a close call except for the grace of God for us. And every day the sin that held us captive still remains in us and still wars against us. There's a sense in this life, yes, we're protected by God and we are kept by God, but brothers, this war still wages and the danger is real and it's right there. And I think this is what Peter is bringing out for us. They entice by the passions of the flesh Christians We who are barely escaping those who live in error. Just look at the Scriptures. Look at how the Apostle Paul himself speaks in Romans. He says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That sounds like a man who knows that he's on the precipice. Look at the examples that we have in the Old Testament of David. How even in his old age, he fell into adultery. Or Solomon. Solomon! Why is Solomon... In the Old Testament, the wisest man who ever lived. The man who authored the words that we read this morning about blessedness and wisdom and understanding. Who, when he grew old, was led into idolatry. And we could mention Hezekiah, or Eli, or Noah, or Lot, or even Moses, who slipped and fell in terrible ways. Or Peter in the New Testament who even denied Jesus, not once, but three times. We are those who are barely escaping those who live in error. And these false teachers know what our weak spot is. (laughs) They know how to take advantage of it by enticing and luring and baiting by the sensual passions of the flesh. This is a call to us to be on guard and to be awake. That's the message of 2 Peter. He goes on in verse 19 to talk about liberty They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. They promise freedom. 
Now, this can take on many forms how a false teacher promises freedom, but it all boils down to this, and every false teaching you'll ever find, what they're ultimately promising is that you can have your sin. You can have it, you can keep it. You're free to sin. That's how you can spot false teaching. Yet they themselves are slaves to corruption. They are slaves to sin. Peter says they have been overcome by it. Well, the question that this raises, and this is just a point of application, it's a little bit of an aside, but it's an important one. It's the topic at hand. How do we escape bondage? We've already read from John chapter 8 that the only way to escape bondage, only the Son can set us free. And the Son says that if we abide in His Word, the truth will set us free. And in many ways, what Jesus is saying is that the only way to be free from the bondage of sin is to become in bondage to Christ. The only way to be set free from the slavery of sin is to become slaves of Jesus Christ. This is the message, in fact, of the whole New Testament. It's the message of the whole Bible. To submit ourselves, to bow the knee before Him, and to become His servants, and to become His slaves. So that at this point you might ask me the question and say, are you really saying that the only way that I can be free is if I become a slave? (laughs) And you'll say, I don't know if you know what you're talking about. And you're going to question my credibility at this point. But this is what the Bible teaches. And I know that this is a difficult concept to understand. I want to spend some time on it for that reason. Especially as Americans. We are good Americans. And we do not understand this idea of slavery as the Bible presents it to us. Everyone in America thinks that they are free. (laughs) And everyone hates the idea of being a slave. But the Bible teaches us that every person is a slave. All people are slaves. The Bible tells us that we are all born into this world slaves of sin. Slaves of self. We are under a tyranny the worst kind of tyranny. And that's the tyranny of our own flesh. The tyranny of our own will. And our own desires. And if we think about it, and the way that the Bible teaches this and explains it to us, is that if we're slaves to ourself, the reality is is that we are all creatures. We're all weak creatures. We're all weak people. And we are every day influenced by outside forces. It's laughable if you think about it for more than two seconds to think that you're free. You're in bondage to to the influence of this world. You're in bondage, the Bible tells us, to invisible spiritual forces, ideas and concepts and lies and deceptions that you can't see and put your hands on. And they influence you and it's the water that you swim in and it's the air that you breathe. And the Bible tells us that we're enslaved to this. And we're enslaved to our own desires. There are things that we do that we wish that we hadn't done. Our flesh is hungry. And it moves us and it drives us and we become slaves to the flesh. And there's a conspiracy. There's a conspiracy of masters in this world. Sin, self, the world, the flesh, the devil. And they're all conspiring with this one deceptive message that you're free. If you have what you want, that's what it means to be free. It's a lie. And all of these masters are at work for one end. The Bible tells us death, self-destruction. 
If you have what you want, there's a, right, there's a way that seems right to a man, the Bible says, but its end is the way of death. This is the message Jesus was trying to get across to the Pharisees. If you dig your heels in against the Word of God, against the Word of Christ, against the truth, it only leads to death. You're slaves of Satan. You're sons of the devil. And you need to be set free. And so the question that the Bible presents to us is not, are you, are you a slave or are you free? The question that the Bible would teach us to ask is, who is my master? Who am I free to serve? Who am I free to obey? And our real need is to find liberty from multiple masters who are set on our death and our destruction and to be set free into the service of one master who by definition is the waters of life, who is the source of all blessing, who is the one who created us for himself, who is righteous, who is holy. And we need to be in bondage to that master and set free from sin and set free from self and set free from the world and the flesh and the devil and from death itself. And here's the kicker. The Bible teaches us that there's only one master who's willing to tell us the truth. Sin all day long lies to us and says you'll find life in yourself. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they say the same lie. There's one master who tells us the truth. This is why I had John chapter 8 read. Because he tells it so plainly. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's the truth. You are a slave to sin. The way his apostle puts this in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, do you not know that if a person presents themselves as obedient slaves to sin, they are slaves of sin? If you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slave, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And in the context there, righteousness is life. And God, through Jesus Christ, tells us the truth. We are slaves of sin and slaves of death. And he brings this glorious good news, this message of his absolute lordship and his absolute sovereignty. And that by faith in him, he makes himself our Lord. By his mercy and by his grace, he makes himself our Lord. And we have liberty in Him. And He sets us free from the bondage of sin. And He sets us free from the bondage of self and of the world and of the flesh and of the devil. There is liberty in Christ. There is liberty in truth to service to one true Master. This is how Romans chapter 6 puts it. Verse 17 to 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves have sinned have become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching, to the truth, to the Christian faith, to the doctrine. You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. The slavery of righteousness, the slavery of freedom. These false teachers do not have this system of doctrine this standard of teaching. 
It was committed to them and they abandoned it, Peter is saying. And only in that system is there freedom. Only in that system is there liberty. Only in that system of faith is freedom from condemnation and sin. And so false teachers miss this point, and they are in on the deception. They promise liberty, but they themselves are slaves of sin. Slaves of anything but Jesus Christ. And then so finally, we get to the outcome of these deceptions, or this deceptiveness, the retroversion of false teachers, the turning back. They have turned back. Now, it's important that we understand something here. The point is, is yes, they've turned back to sin. It's very easy for us to read this passage and to reduce it to that just simply. They've returned back to sin. They're slaves of corruption. Uh, Peter's already described to us their depravity and their character. And we've seen it. But the idea that Peter's getting home here in these verses is that they have turned back to sin in a way that is worse than before. Than worse than it ever has been before. And he's not simply teaching us that if we go back to sin, things will be worse as if we, than if we had never repented. Or then who, what Christian could repent? He's saying something more than this. And we don't want to miss it. You see, they turn back to their sin, but now they do so in the name of Jesus Christ. They turn back to sin, but they do so in the name of the truth. They turn back to their sin, but they do so through the guise of a twisted gospel. So that there's a deceptiveness here. There's a, an entanglement here. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a humanly irretrievable turning back. Who can save them? Under the pretense of fullness and of water of life. Under the banner of the water of life. Under the pretense of liberty and the banner of liberty. They have returned again to sin. The situation for them now is worse than it had been if they had never come to Christ at all. Because they have twisted the truth and they've come under a false gospel. Maybe you've seen this in the real world. Maybe you know somebody who's part of a false system of teaching. And you know how hard it is to get across to them that they're not Christians. They believe that they're Christians. They, believe, they follow Christ. They know who God is. They're believers of God. They live a basically decent moral life. How are they any different than the rest of us? The situations become worse for them. It'd be better to talk to them as pagans than it is to talk to them in their false teaching. It's become worse for them because they become entangled in this false doctrine so that the last state for them is worse than the first. This is the picture that Peter is painting. They become vaccinated. They're inoculated to the truth. Because of these false teachers and following these false teachers, because of the deceptions and the lies. Look at verse 20. Look at how he puts this here. He says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it's through the truth, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Peter is making it very clear to us that they had escaped. They had come into the system of faith that we teach. They had apprehended it to some extent. They had acknowledged it and affirmed it to some extent. It reminds us of the words of 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. 
For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. So they were with us. They had our doctrine. They had the truth. But they twisted it. But notice more importantly in this verse, the last state has become worse for them than the first. What Peter's really doing here is he's calling us back to Matthew chapter 12. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 to 45. He's playing off Jesus' words here. He's calling to mind this parable that Jesus speaks and its context. He's likening what happens to the false teachers to, that, to what Jesus was addressing in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 through 45. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. He's addressing the Jews who are rejecting Him, who are ready to kill Him and to crucify Him. But notice this parable that He speaks here. Verse 43 of chapter 12, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, wilderness, seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. So what, what's the story that Jesus is drawing here? Here's a person. He presents him before us. This person has a demon. This person reforms their life to some extent. They, they sweep house. They clean house. And the demon is driven away. And then the, the, the demon, while he's away, gets restless. And he says, I want to go pick on that guy again. But this time he comes with seven demons worse than himself, more evil, more deceptive than before. And they enter the house of this man who's been reformed, and they make his situation worse than it was at the first. That's the picture that Jesus is painting for. It's a very simple story. But what he's talking about are the Jews. And what is he talking about? Well, he's addressing their legalism, isn't he? You have to understand, let me paint this picture for you. In the Old Testament, the story of the Jews is this. God had entered into a covenant with them, And he had told them not to commit idolatry. And he said, if you commit idolatry, I'm going to be severe judgments and disciplines upon you. And I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to cast you out of your land. And only because of my mercy and my faithfulness will I ever bring you back. And that's exactly what happens in the history of the Jews, the history of Israel in the Old Testament. They commit idolatry. They rebel against the Lord. God brings destruction to them in their city, cast them out of the land. He eventually brings them back. Guess what happens? Guess what we never read of? You've read the Old Testament in almost every page before the exile. What is it that Israel is struggling with? They're worshiping Baal or the false gods. Molech or Asherim. False worship and false gods. And guess what we never read of again from Israel after the exile, after they're returned? They're not worshipers of idols anymore, ever. They've reformed themselves. They've cleaned house. They become Pharisees. They become students of God's law because they never want to experience the judgment again. But you understand what happens then is that they do this and yet God hasn't given them His Spirit. They've just cleaned house. They've just reformed themselves a little bit. They've heard God's Word and they've experienced something of the work of God in their nation's history. And it makes them twice the sons of hell that they were before. Their situation is worse than ever. 
Because now they think that they're right with God. They think that they're students of God's law. They have the Word of God. They're studying Moses. They're studying the prophets. And they're taking it seriously. But then what happens? Jesus, God sends the Messiah. And they reject their own Messiah because they don't understand Moses. And they don't know what God... They don't understand the grace of God. They don't understand the promises of God. And this is the parable that Jesus is speaking to that generation. He says, you're just like this. You're like a man who swept house and seven demons more evil, more deceptive have come upon you. You've fallen into legalism. You've fallen into a fleshly reading of the Word of God. How can you be saved? Your condition is worse than it was. It would have been better for me to come to a people who were pagans than to come to a people who were legalists and Pharisees. And this is the point that Peter is drawing out here. This is the idea or the teaching that he's drawing out here is they had twisted the Word of God. How do you tell a Pharisee that he needs to be right with God? (laughs) You can't do it. He's entangled in a mess. Look at how Peter puts it in verse 21. They turned back from what was delivered to them. Verse 21, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And again, a lot of people read that passage and they put the emphasis on the righteousness and the holiness of the commandment. And that's certainly a a fine way to make an application from this passage, but it's not the point that Peter is making. Peter's emphasis here, and I think I've made it clear to you throughout the course of the sermon, would be on the words, the way, the commandment, and that which was delivered to them. They've rejected the truth. They've twisted it. They've come into a false understanding of the truth. And in doing so, they've turned back to their corruption. So the cause and effect chain here is that the truth produces liberty. False doctrine produces bondage back into sin. They've turned back. It would have been better for them to have never become Christians than to become Christians and to pervert or water down the gospel. If we think of their followers, it would have been better for them to have never become Christians than to become Christians into a system of false teaching. Because there's an entanglement. There's a turning back. There's a retroversion that is worse than the first. And so Peter uses these gruesome illustrations that I think will be helpful for us in verse 22. Look at verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now again, a surface level reading of that passage is pretty clear. They go back to their sin. But the picture that he's painting here is more interesting than this. Because this dog, who returns to his vomit, first ate. He ate good food. He was nourished. What he returns to is the regurgitation of what he ate, a perverted, disgusting, corrupted form of what he first received. 
That's the illustration that Peter is pointing for us here. It's a picture of a twisted gospel. It's a picture of someone who comes into the faith and then twists it. And they spew it out of their mouth and they return to the thing that they spewed out. They return to false doctrine or they turn to false doctrine and returning to false doctrine, they return to sin. The other picture is the same picture, the pig. Notice that the pig washed itself. It was clean. But then it returned to wallowing in its mire. And you know what the mire of a pig is. It's not just mud. Can you imagine what's in that mud? It's the corruption of that pig. And so he paints this picture for us, a very vivid picture of someone who receives the gospel and vomits it up in a perverted form. The situation is worse for them than it was at first. They've been inoculated to the truth. They've been deceived. So what are the applications from what Peter has taught us today? A couple of things. Number one, if you're in Jesus Christ, what I hope that you see from this passage is what a holy, serious, and weighty thing the Christian faith really is. It is the waters of life. It, it is the promise that speaks to the very fundamental basic root of your humanity, fullness in God, liberty from sin into the image of God, into righteousness, liberty, fullness, something better, glory, riches, honor is the way that Proverbs speaks about it. A glorious future. The gospel is a weight of glory. And we must guard it and we must protect it. To pervert the truth is to lose the promises. We only find that fulfillment through sound doctrine. We only find that liberty through the truth as it is in Jesus by abiding in His Word is the way He puts it in John chapter 8. We only find the riches and the honor in wisdom. And so, brothers and sisters, what Peter is calling us to in 2 Peter is to treasure these truths, to treasure the Christian faith, to treasure sound doctrine, and to pursue it with all your heart. And so then secondarily, Peter is driving home to us the need for the Spirit of Christ. Because the Word of God teaches us that we only know the truth, that we only understand sound doctrine, and the only hope we have of ever clinging to it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit always works with the Word. And we have this need for Christ, and we have need for sound doctrine, and we have need for the Spirit of Christ. And this is a call to prayer and trust in Jesus Christ. If you are outside of Christ, the message from the passage today is very simple to you. Come to Jesus Christ and be saved and find the things that are promised. Only in Christ, only in the truth as it is in Christ, can you find fullness in God, liberty from sin, and the hope of glory. In no other system can you find it, one and only, in Christ and in His truth. So come to Him. He commands you to come to Him today and to be saved and to find life and liberty and a future, riches, honor, and glory. He calls you to it. Trust in Him and believe in Him. But know this, if you're outside of Christ, this is the second application for you this morning. It is a serious thing to become a Christian. The Christian faith is a weight of glory. 
to come to it lightly or to come to it falsely is worthy of a destiny that is worse than if you had never come at all. It is better for you not to come to the faith than to come to it falsely or for some agenda or for some reason other than Christ, other than a sincere love for Christ, not a perfect love, but a sincere love and for a dependent trust in Him as He's presented in the Gospel. Now, I hope that that's an encouragement to you to really come to Christ and receive the weight of glory, to come to Him as He's presented to us in the Gospel and to trust in Him and to love Him. But it's a weighty thing. It's a, one, it's a glorious thing. It's life. It's fullness. It's liberty. And it's a future. So come to Jesus Christ. Brothers, let us hold on to the truth.